Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that demystifies history one day at a time. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're talking about the mysterious death of Genghis Khan, the Mongol leader who forged one of the most expansive empires the world has ever known, and then disappeared without a trace. The day was August 18th, 1227. Notorious warlord Genghis Khan died from unknown causes during the conquest of the Chinese kingdom of Shisha. The Mongol leader was in his mid-sixties and had been sick with fever for more than a week before his passing. His death was handled with great secrecy at the time, for fear that news of his demise might compromise the Mongols' current military campaign and embolden their enemies. As a result, numerous legends began to circulate about the true cause of the Great Khan's death. Nearly 800 years later, that speculation continues, though some historians believe they may have found the answer at long last. Before we get into the details of his death, let's talk a little about how Genghis Khan rose to power and what life was like for a 12th century Mongol before he came along. At the time, there were roughly one million nomadic people living on the Central Asian steppe, not far from the border between modern Mongolia and Siberia. As you might imagine, life in that region was pretty brutal, with dozens of different tribes living in the same general area and competing for the same limited resources. 
Because of that scarcity, drinking, fighting, and theft were rampant between the tribes. This cultivated a fearful atmosphere, with most people choosing to sleep on top of their weapons, just in case anyone tried something during the night. That's the world Genghis Khan was born into in the early 1160s, although he wasn't called that at the time. In his early life, he was named Temujin, which was the Mongol word for blacksmith. According to legend, the boy was born clutching a blood clot in his fist, a sign in the Mongol culture that he was destined to be a great leader. Of course, even without a blood clot, Temujin would have still been in line for a pretty cushy leadership role. He was the son of a Mongol chieftain, the head of a clan which was composed of around 40,000 families. And because Asia's feudal system favored class and ancestry, he was next in line for his father's title. That said, Mongol leaders endured many of the same hardships as their people, so it's not like his family status would have put him on easy street. Case in point, when Temujin was just nine years old, his father was poisoned to death by assassins from a rival clan. And since Temujin was still so young, he wasn't given the chance to take over his father's role. To make matters worse, the clan now saw he and his family as a burden, one that they'd be responsible for feeding and housing from then on. To solve that problem, Temujin, along with his mother and six siblings, were banished from their own clan. Things only got worse for Temujin during his teenage years. Most of his days were spent hunting and foraging with his family, and during one particularly low point in their poverty, Temujin is said to have murdered his older half-brother during an argument over a piece of fish. As if that wasn't bad enough, he was later captured and enslaved by the same clan that had banished him a few years earlier. Luckily, Temujin was able to escape, and soon after, he decided he was strong enough to return to society and marry the woman he had been betrothed to just before his father's death. That's when things finally started to turn around for the man who would be Khan. He convinced the tribe leader to honor the old agreement with his father, allowing him to marry the chief's daughter. With that, Temujin's honor was more or less restored, and he once again had a place in Mongol society. However, things didn't stay peaceful for long. Soon after his wedding, a rival tribe went on a raid, and during the scuffle, Temujin's bride was kidnapped and carried off on horseback. That was the last straw for Temujin. Rather than backing down, he rallied some friends and went to rescue her. Fresh from that win, Temujin began to form more alliances, quickly attracting a horde of followers over the course of the next few years. In this way, he gradually consolidated all the various nomadic tribes, until 1205, when Temujin bested the very last of his rivals. At that point, the established leadership structure of Mongol society had been completely toppled, and the steppe tribes were united for the first time in history. The following year, Temujin called together representatives from every part of the region and announced they were now part of a brand new nation, one that would be organized by shared laws and overseen by a single ruler. At the end of the meeting, Temujin was proclaimed Chengiz Khan, meaning universal ruler, or as he's known in the West, Genghis Khan. With the tribes united, Genghis Khan spent the next two decades steadily growing his empire. At the peak of his power, 
The Mongol leader controlled roughly 12 million contiguous square miles, more than twice as much land as any other person before or since. At the heart of that conquest was a ferocious yet highly disciplined Mongol army composed of just 100,000 men. For such a relatively small army to conquer and hold that much territory would have been impossible for most countries. But that was the genius of Genghis Khan. He didn't operate like the rulers of most countries. The innovations he brought to society and warfare made it possible for his people not only to build an empire through conquest, but to run it effectively once the fighting was done. He created universal laws aimed at keeping the peace and preventing the infighting that had previously plagued his tribe. First and foremost, he granted religious freedom to everyone under his rule. This was crucial because so many of his followers practiced different religions. Within his ranks, you'd find Jews, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Taoists, as well as other animistic traditions like the shamanism he himself practiced. As new regions fell to the Mongol invaders, religious representation within the horde became more and more diverse. Genghis Khan also outlawed several traditional practices of the time, such as torturing prisoners, kidnapping women, and taking other Mongols as servants or slaves. Some of those decisions drew directly from his own experiences. His wife had been kidnapped, and he himself had been enslaved. This taught him firsthand that you can't build a functioning community or economy when fellow citizens are living in bondage. That was perhaps the most distinguishing feature of Genghis Khan's reign, the way he dealt with the people and places he conquered. His entire goal was to extend his empire and grow his horde, and that meant that wholesale slaughter was out of the question. Instead, he viewed any nation they conquered as a source of new recruits for his army. Genghis Khan knew that if he treated his defeated enemies with enough respect, they wouldn't mind joining forces and bending the knee to him. The process worked like this. Once he had conquered a nation, he killed all the leaders on the spot as punishment for leading their people into a war they couldn't win. He also killed off the wealthy ruling class because he considered them soft. Plus, he figured he could never win their loyalty anyway. As for everyone else, if they surrendered, they were spared. Anyone with useful skills was allowed to stay and carry on with their lives pretty much as usual though now as subjects of the great Genghis Khan. Remarkably, that rule held true for any skill, not just for warriors. Basket weavers and those with the ability to write were valued just as much as those who farmed or forged weapons. As for the conquered citizens who didn't have skills, they were spared as well, though they were typically forced into labor or even used as human shields in the army's next battle. There's an important distinction there. It shows that while Genghis Khan may have been progressive for the time, he was still very much of the time. However progressive he may have been, he was still an incredibly harsh and violent ruler when he wanted to be. In fact, while there is no official number, historians estimate that somewhere around 40 million people were killed during Genghis Khan's conquest of Asia and Europe. That's roughly 11% of the entire world population at the time. Ironically, a 2003 study in the American Journal of Human Genetics 
found that about 1 in 200 men worldwide may be a direct descendant of Genghis Khan. So while he and his forces wiped out a massive chunk of the population, he seems to have done more than his share to replenish it as well. All told, in roughly two and a half decades, Genghis Khan and his army conquered more lands and people than the Romans did in 400 years. By 1227, his empire encompassed much of Central Asia, as well as parts of Eastern Europe, Persia, and India. On August 18, 1227, Genghis Khan's reign finally came to an end, although how exactly it happened is still a matter of debate. Some sources say he died in battle against the Chinese while trying to bring an end to a revolt in the kingdom of Shisha. Others claim he succumbed to injuries sustained from falling off his horse. Another theory was that he bled to death after being stabbed and castrated by a Tengut princess. Meanwhile, Italian explorer Marco Polo insisted that the Khan actually died from an infection after an archer shot him in the knee. In reality, all of those stories surfaced decades after the Mongol leader's death, and there's little tangible evidence to back up any of them. However, in recent years, researchers have sought a more definitive answer from a pair of documents written around the time of Khan's death or shortly thereafter. The first is a report from a Chinese official who was an advisor to Genghis Khan. It explains that thousands of Mongol troops had contracted the bubonic plague in 1226, just one year before their leader fell ill. The second piece of evidence is a report of Genghis Khan's death written by a 14th century Chinese historian. In it, the author describes the great Khan's sickness in the week leading up to his death, and all of his symptoms match up with those of the plague. In light of that evidence, many historians now believe Genghis Khan was himself a victim of the bubonic plague, and that Mongol leadership simply covered up his illness, and perhaps even circulated false stories, as a way to project strength during a tumultuous time. Another strange aspect of the death of Genghis Khan is that no one knows where he was buried. He allegedly wanted to be placed in an unmarked grave, and there's even a rumor that anyone who looked at his funeral procession was killed, so that only a select few would know the location of his final resting place. There's also a story that says Mongol engineers diverted a river in order to cover up his grave. It's unclear whether there's any truth to that, but whatever they did, it seems to have worked, since to this day, we still don't know where his body is buried. One of the few things we can say for certain is that Genghis Khan was a man of contradictions. Tolerant of other religions and cultures, kind to women and prisoners, a staunch defender of the rule of law, yet also a mass murderer the likes of which the world had never seen and hopefully won't see ever again. In that sense, the mystery surrounding his death and burial seems fitting. In death, just as in life, Genghis Khan remains as enigmatic as ever. I'm Gabe Lusier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you enjoyed today's show, consider keeping up with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or you can send your feedback directly to me at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. 
I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have, hardwired inside of us, our relaxation response. And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, it'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro Series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, guys? This is Sean. Lights Out Merriman. And Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at lightsoutxf.com. And we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com.